The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Look at the city and see its Lord. And we understand, Lord, now, perhaps more than the psalmist got, we understand that we now live in the city of God here, your church. And you invite us again to consider the church and see its Lord. So help us do that this morning. Help us to to hear that same word in the New Testament passage in First Timothy that we look at. Help us to hear that same word and to think well about how we, the people of God, are the illustration of you, the living God. Move us, Lord. Refine us and build us up. Shape us. Do us good for the sake of your name displayed in the nation's. Use your scripture now and teach us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. In many ways, it is very helpful to talk about personal relationship with Jesus. This sort of lingo crept into the Christian cultural vocabulary a few decades back as a way of reinforcing the important truth, and it is important the important truth of personal conversion, of personally, an individual person becoming a Christian, which comes from personal repentance, a a person turning from one's sin and from one's guilt, personal repentance, and personal faith then, turning from one's own sin to Jesus personally, trusting him and his work on the cross to pay for one's own personal sin. We think like that, and we talk like that, we're putting a person personally, individually before God and inviting him or her to think personally about these eternally important truths for oneself. It's really important and really helpful. As long as it's also the case that this individualistic language is joined with, not replaced by, but joined with some strong corporate language about the people of God, the church. No individual Christian was ever intended to remain an individual Christian by him or herself, a free agent of some sort, kind of roaming around an island finding a home. No, no. We're all supposed to be, each individual Christian is supposed to live in, be a, a connected part, deeply so, of a local body, a church. But for what purpose? Because it's helpful to us, for sure. It's helpful for us individually to be a part of a local body, for sure. But that's not what our passage for today is getting at. Rather, what we're going to see in our passage today is a point that perhaps it's a subtle one, but it's an important point that's very helpful in clarifying. The church that we are to be a part of is not ultimately for us. And our involvement in it, that too, is not ultimately for 
us. It is indeed very beneficial for us, and this is the subtle part. It is beneficial for us, but it's not for us, primarily. The church is for God and for God's purposes. Again, the subtle part, and God's purposes include us. So it is, but it isn't. The church is for God and for God's purposes. The church is like a living, breathing, visual aid designed to show off something, someone. Like the ancient psalmist said, look at the city and see this is God. We're designed to be a visual aid to show off something, someone that might not not otherwise be seen clearly except the church shows it in how we are. That's what we're going to be considering today as we look at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I, th- I think that as we get this point, if we can get it, if I can make it clear, it's, it's a subtle point, but I think I can make it clear. What we're going to see here is, is a helpful kind of a change in perspective, something that tells us how to view every situation, every, every circumstance, every, every day that we find ourselves walking through. It's going to help us to think, what am I illustrating right now? What are, what are we an illustration of right now? It's, that's very different than, is this helpful for me right now? What am I getting from this right now? Subtle difference, but an important difference. What am I illustrating? What are we showing off? What are we displaying? We, we, we. What are we showing rather than what am I getting? It's an important difference, which we're going to see this morning in 1 Timothy 3. Let me read the passage and then draw two observations from it. This is the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 3. Two observations. Here's the first. As God's church, God requires us to live so as to display God's truth. God, God, God. As God's church, God requires us to live so as to display God's truth. Verse 14, we find out that while Paul expects to come to Ephesus, that the church he's writing to here is the church that's in Ephesus, he expects to come there himself personally to teach, but he knows that that may not happen, so he's writing instead, so that regardless whether he comes or not, Timothy and the church that reads this, and including us, the church that reads this, will get the teaching and know how one ought to behave, what the verse says. Literally, it's how it is necessary to behave, what kind of behavior is required. So that's the, the statement that gives us 
shaped the whole of the letter. All that we're reading here is what Paul says about how we are required to behave. So this is not good advice. It's not Paul's opinion. It's God's requirement for his people. And right away, we notice something there. It feels a little odd, probably, that I just used the word behave a few times and required a few times. It kind of feels a little strange to us. But what we notice right away is that this is perfectly appropriate. It's perfectly appropriate to talk about required behavior in the church built by God's grace. As someone once said, grace is not opposed to work. Grace is opposed to merit. In other words, grace, what God gives us freely, what God gives to us, in this case particularly salvation, what he gives to us freely does not mean that we are never supposed to work. It means that we can never get ourselves in a position where we say to God, you should I deserve. Never. And if we get that clear, if, if we get certain, we understand clearly that I never find myself in a spot where I say to God, you must, you should, then I can understand, yeah, it's, it's fine and appropriate to talk about behavior. Not to become a member of God's family, but because I am one already, there's a way that I should behave, a way that's required. That's what we see here. True for all Christians, because we now live in God's church. When a person becomes a Christian, we relocate. We move into and now live in the household of God. First phrase there. We hear that word, we should be thinking household, we should think about extended family and location. The scripture is full of language about house of God. Specifically, of course, the temple, the place where God dwells. And with the architecture language is later in this verse that the idea of a building kind of should be on our mind. There's a building that we're talking about here, a house where God lives. And the church now not the, the literal Old Testament temple, not any other building or any other temple now or any time in the future. The church now is the house of God in which God dwells. This is his house. He lives here. He's, this, is, this is his domicile. He's here and so are we in God's house. A building location and also it's a household which is less about location and more about relationship they're, they're related because the household lives in the house but we also think of a family that that the household of God is the family of God with God as its head called by God's name run by God's standards for God's ends and I'll lay the emphasis there on God He's the Lord and Father in all the household. And all the household then 
Look to him equally as Lord and look to him equally as Father. So we all are co-laborers, brothers and sisters, all of us whom belong to him. We're now in God's household. Which brings many benefits to us individually, for sure. And we rejoice in them, for sure. I don't want to diminish that at all. I want to celebrate that. We should celebrate the fact that we are a people who have been brought together and, and we have a, a, a family and we have a communion with people and we have a secure place. We have an identity. All by God's grace. We had no birthright to it. He chose to make it so and put us in his family, adopted us in, and gave us residence in his home with him. That, that is awesome. We should celebrate that. It is personally, individually, extremely beneficial. However, the emphasis here is that all of this belongs to him. It's his. And we are present in it by his choice for his purposes. It's the household of God, and it's also known as the church of the living God. The assembly, congregation, that's what church means. Church is not really a Christian word. It's, it's just a word. It can be used in secular settings. It means just a gathered, assembled people. It's used in the the Greek version of the Old Testament to talk about the Old Testament people of God in the wilderness. They were the assembled people of God in the wilderness, the church of God in the wilderness. Now, that's us. We are the assembled people of God, the assembled people of the living God. He's the God who is real. He's alive and powerful and true. He's not a dead false God made of wood that people have to lift up and, and carve out and decorate and carry around and do for. He's the real, the living God who does for us. Who reigns over all of the world and holds everything in his hands sovereign. and is working in every circumstance to lift up and to take down all towards the end of carrying out his good, wise, holy purposes. And in particular, one of those purposes, certainly and sweetly, is to give life to us, his people. He's the only source of life. As the living God, he is the one who gives life, and he is the one in whom life is sustained. He brought us to life, and he upholds life in us because he brought us into his family, gave us residence in his house, assembled us together under his living hand. We are people in the household of God, in the church of the living God. Pause right there. There's an assumption here so far that 
it might be helpful to, to bring out from behind and put in front. The assumption in this passage is that God is talking to Christians in the context of the corporate body, like I've just been talking about. So I, I imagine that I didn't say anything to you about church, about assembly, maybe a few little details about what the words mean, but I didn't say anything to you about the family of God, the household of God, the temple of God that you didn't already know. But the assumption here is that those phrases, he's talking to individual Christians in that context. And he's going to tell us how we have to behave in that context because that's our context. And he does not mean to say, now, Christian, if you're not in the church, well, that's different. Somewhere else, I'd have to tell you how to behave by yourself, individually. No. He has a one-to-one -one correlation. Christian, that is, those living their lives in the church. There are no free agents. There are no individual Christians. One-to-one -one correlation. I'm saying this like a third time here. Every Christian is in the body, in the church, in, in the sense of not just physically located on a blue chair in a gym, but connected like arm is to torso, in. That's what we are. That's the assumption. Our existence is in this context. So we think about the, the church, the household of God. We, we must never think about me as an individual looking at an entity over there that's maybe kind of like a, a resource for me. It's like the grocery store. And when I have a need, I stop in and pick up some milk and some bread. And then over there's the mall. When I have a need, I go get a shirt. It is easy for us, I think, I think maybe even a little bit common for us to think about the church as, as that. Like, I'm a me, I'm an individual, and out there somewhere is this, is this resource provider. When I need instruction or when I need encouragement or when I need companionship, I go to the church. And then I leave. No. It's the other way around. It's like any one of our biological families or physical homes. We go out from our physical homes. We depart from our biological families, the families of, that we live in, we live within, but we always come back to them. We go out to do something and come home. We go out and come home. This is home base. And every moment of every day, we're living with the conscious awareness that I know where my house is. I know who my people are. And everything I do is done with reference to them and that place. 
I'm always acting with, with in, in my mind, what, what are their needs and what are their goals and what are their standards? How we have to carry ourselves all day long is determined by what our, our, our home is and what our family is. We go out from that, but we come back to it. So, as part of this family, living in God's house, how should I carry myself? Given the assumption that I am in this house, that I am a part of this family, in this household, that I'm assembled together with this people, how should I carry myself? Well, that would depend on what the point is. What's God want to do here? What's the head of the house designed us for and assigned us to? That's the next phrase, the end of verse 15. We are the household of God. We are the assembly, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. For this architecture language to make sense, you have to think of old, big buildings. First thing you see when you look at a big, ancient building, and maybe you could think of the Acropolis in Athens, maybe you've been there or seen pictures of that. For these folks living in Ephesus, what would have immediately leaped to mind, maybe they could even lift up their eyes and looked at it, was the gigantic temple to the goddess Artemis. This huge temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the size of a football stadium. It's a huge building. Dominated the skyline of Ephesus, not to mention the whole culture of the city. If you look at the temple of Artemis or you look at the, the uh, Acropolis, such a building like that or a temple like that, the main thing you see are the pillars all around the outside, hundreds of them sometimes. Massive, gigantic columns, several stories tall, huge. All of them purposed to lift up the roof above everything else so that everyone can see it. It's impressive, but of course the design trick was to figure out how you get it that high, but you keep it from tottering back and forth and falling over. You get it high, but you then have to keep it steadied. That's what the buttressing part is about. There are lots of different ways that could be done, but it had to be done somehow or another. You lift up something with pillars, and then you secure it, or you anchor it, or you buttress it, you steady it. So this God's household, this God's church, this gathered people, we have a purpose to lift up like a pillar and then to steady like a buttress. Lift up and steady what? If you're thinking like this, it's about lift up and steady me and my heart. It's to lift up and, and steady my joy or my well-being or my sense for community and my, my need for, for people or something. It's not about me. It's not about you. The church is God's house designed and assembled by God to be an instrument in his hand to lift up the truth, it says, 
to lift up the truth in the world and then to steady it so that it stands tall on the skyline of every city and everyone can see it. That's what God had in mind when he made us collectively. When he made the church. Which is why Paul can be so clear and maybe even audacious to tell us that there's a way we have to behave. We're required to live as an organization, as a family. And we ought to behave in ways that uphold the teaching of the truth so that we all know what the truth is. To live in ways that, that model the truth so that we all know what the truth looks like what it doesn't. And to display it clearly in word and in deed so that those on the outside can also know what the truth is and can see what it looks like lived out. We do that individually to a degree, yes. But we're designed as a family because a great majority, if you ever thought about this, ever, ever considered it by looking through the New Testament, the great majority of this upholding of the truth and displaying of the truth and teaching and modeling and proclaiming requires one another. Love one another. Forgive one another. Teach one another. Serve one another correct and rebuke and encourage one another. All through there, if you begin to read the, the commands of the New Testament in this light, you realize, I actually, somebody said this this last week, you can't obey most of the Bible by yourself. You can't. Because it's interpersonal. So God, God did this one-to-one -one correlation, put us individually in a church because he wants to, sh to show us and the world this is what I'm talking about. This is who I am. I fix this. This happened at the fall. I fix that. I put people back together, not just individually making us whole like Humpty Dumpty, but I put all of the eggs back into the, the carton and I make them sit there well together, sweetly, familially, in love, forgiving, united. One. That doesn't happen apart from me. Look, it does happen with me. With me in their midst, it happens. It's what we're for. It's what we are doing to live in a way that reflects in, in our circle and out there God's character and God's nature and God's goals and his manner. Living within the church community. That's what God requires on us to live, to behave ourselves in God's house. Because God wants God's glory to cover God's earth like the water covers the sea. And God wants that glory rightly understood and rightly seen and rightly honored because he wants all sorts of people to be saved. Remember that from chapter 2. And so he wants us to live godly and dignified lives. Remember that from chapter 2. That's what God's about and what we're for. And so it gives us some directions, like I said earlier, in every moment of every day as I'm moving through my day to, 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 to not think, what am I getting out of this? How is this doing for me? But to think, what am I illustrating? Who am I displaying? 
with whom? He wants us to live godly and dignified lives together, reflecting trust of and found life in the truth of God that gets us at mission. And that can be a little challenging, so that's going to take us to the second point. The second point is here, I think, because the first point can be challenging. Here's the second observation. The truth we're trying to display is the greatest wonder of the world. The truth we're trying to display is the greatest wonder of the world. Verse 16, we get a, a transition. Paul moves almost to a song. Almost breaks out in song in verse 16. But you can probably tell from, depending how your Bible's printed, it's probably either indented or maybe it's in italics, which shows you that these words here were previously existing verses. We're going to look at them in a second. But how do we get to song all of a sudden? I think the, the flow seems to be that the last word of verse 15 gets Paul thinking about truth. The truth we're really trying to lift up. As if he says, and speaking of the truth, my goodness, great indeed is our truth that we have to lift up. We're not really talking about displaying, say, the Ten Commandments. We're not really trying to display propositions with our lives. We're trying to display a person. Song of praise. That's the, that's the flow of thought. Let's walk through it. Literally, verse 16 says, and without question, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is our truth, this mystery. Like we looked at last week in verse 9, when Paul uses the word mystery, he does not mean something that's currently unknown. He means something that in the Old Testament was unknown, was unclear, and now has been revealed, made clear. And you can, you can explain that mystery with a lot of words or with one word. If you use a lot of words, it's the mystery about how can God be righteous and just and holy in how he deals with the world and with people in their sin? How can he up uphold the standards of godliness? How can he get lived out godliness in the world? And at the same time, how can he be loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving of people who break those standards all the time? How can he do that? That's a great mystery in the Old Testament, put as a question in many words, or if you put it as an answer in one word, the mystery is Jesus. The mystery of godliness, the truth that we are really trying to lift up, truth with a capital T, the first word of the song is a person. Notice there's an interesting, interesting twist there, that mystery of godliness you think would be some sort of a teaching, it's actually a he. He was manifested in the flesh. 
great indeed. No doubt is this great one. And again, if you lived in Ephesus, you'd hear something there that we, we probably miss. Anybody remember Acts 19, Paul ministering in Ephesus, the great riot that broke out when people hating Paul wanted to arrest him and they couldn't find him. He was disrupting the industry, the, the worship of Artemis. And so they chanted in a rage for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours in a frenzy, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Well, no doubt, without question, there is something great here in Ephesus. A very great wonder in this world. He, he was revealed in flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. The bookends of his earthly life. He is eternally existent without beginning. God the Son revealed, though, not made, revealed when he became a human being, became flesh. The Father decided to clear up the mystery and made him flesh, and so he dwelt among us and he claimed all kinds of audacious stuff. He claimed to be God in flesh. He claimed to be the Messiah, the ruler of all of the earth and the only way to know God. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And then he died on a cross, seemingly condemned, until he was vindicated by the Spirit, raised from the dead, and proven right. This is his earthly life, what he came to do. And then seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. This takes things one step further. The first two lines were about Christ's work started and finished, and here it is about the work told, proclaimed. All throughout his, his life, we have testimony of, of angels being around and seeing his, his birth and at the, the resurrection, for instance, of seeing and then telling things about him. Well, the angels, heaven speaks of him, and so then do people in all the nations. There's, there's a mission that's gone out proclaiming to everyone everywhere by heaven and by earth what Jesus did. And then lastly, it's positively responded to everywhere, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. What a response. All over the world, a crazy thing happens as we talk about this profound mystery of God who became man, who died cursed so that sinners wouldn't be. We talk about that all over the world, and the amazing thing that happens is that people actually believe it. And still do. He's believed on the world and received into heaven. Heaven affirms it. And he has been raised up in glory and is seated at the right hand in all majesty and honor and splendor, ruling over the world. This truth is lifted up. Therefore, there in heaven and now here on earth, the greatest wonder of all the world, to put it in one word, is Christ. 
Do you know this wonder? If you don't, you need to. This is a wonder who is wonderful. And the reason that people believe on him is that he's true. He's the truth. What he did actually does save people and actually does bring people into the house of God, into God's family. Wonderful. Trust him. But Paul assumes that his readers do know this wonder, like most of us do. That's why you can just skip over the details. I mean, you look at those lines there, that's a song with not a lot of details. It's kind of skipping over the top of his life and the mission and whatnot. He assumes we know it and that we'll fill it in and think on it. So why is this here? Well, let me ask another question. Why don't we behave as we ought? I think it's because we often find other things in the world to be more of a wonder, to be greater, to seem greater, to seem more wonderful, to be attractive to us. We, we, we find them wonderful. We are wonder seekers by God's design. And we find a lot of stuff out there that seems fascinating and promising. Great. And so we're drawn after it. And behaving as we ought seems lesser. We behave as we, as we want to in pursuit of what seems good. God made us wonder seekers, though, because he knew that one day he would manifest in the flesh true, wonderful grandeur, and he made us, he made us ready to receive the heart-satisfying, grand Christ, the one great wonder in the world that would draw us to worship him and then would satisfy our souls in godly ways, in a permanent way. But we are all fallen and our eyes grow dull and we come to call great that which is not and even believe as true that which is false. We get fixated on those things and enamored with them and drawn away and then we, we let our lives become orbiting around them and the wonder of Christ becomes less apparent to us. That's the tragic history of the world. That's humankind and that's why God made the church. He made a people as a temple that then he would come dwell in the midst of he himself. So he would dwell among us and stir us up and move us to follow his decrees. How does he do this? How does he move us to behave as we ought? 
by dwelling in our midst and reminding us of and showing us in power the one great wonder, Jesus, who can draw our hearts after him and can satisfy us really and truly. So he puts us here in a body where when one falls down, another one will pick him up. And when one strays off into air, another one will remind her. He puts us in a body so that we can, indwelt by his spirit, we can be a people who center ourselves repeatedly on this Jesus and then invites us daily to talk about him. So I invite you, church, consider Jesus. This one who is your life. Don't consider how you must behave. Consider Jesus, the great wonder. This is the one who chased you down and caught you and put you in a family. Who has done you good. Who has forgiven you of your sin, made you whole, promised you eternity. Consider Jesus the one lover of your soul, the one powerful Savior, the one sovereign, wise, good God. Consider him. Be reminded of him. Great is the mystery. The only thing is great. He put us as a people so that this truth, this one, would dwell in the midst of us we would, be, we would stir one another up to look at him and consider him as we lift him up in front of one another by the power of God. We don't have the power to do it ourselves. By the power of God in us, we lift him up in front of one another. We steady him so that he stands. We remind ourselves when we, when we want to stray away, we want to fall over, we lift up, we hold together this one who is the wonderful truth. And then as we see him, we walk after him. And display him in the world. This is what we're for. How? Well, there's a thousand ways. That's all this is about, right? The rest of the book is about. The rest of the book is about. But the important piece for us this morning is to consider Jesus as the great mystery and then say, and what I'm for with this people is the displaying of that truth to us and out there for them. That's why God made the church. To lift up the truth, to display his glory for each other and in the world, that's what's right and fitting for us. And it brings us life. As I think about a church like that, I'm actually kind of helped and kind of thankful. Because it tells me something about what I'm supposed to do and then says, and that's actually, then it comes around to me individually. That's good for me. And that's good for me. That's good to me. God's a genius. God doesn't let us hang out by ourselves because the world would not see Christ. 
Nor would I. He's a genius. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making the church and for giving it a job to display you. To uphold your your true teaching. To live out the truth to one another, one another. To display you. That is good for me. That helps me. That helps each of us individually to follow you. And it carries out your purposes of pressing your glory into all the corners of the earth. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your wise plan and for your power. We take communion now, Lord, and we, we remind ourselves of, in these elements of what you did in Christ's sacrifice. And maybe this morning in particular, remind us of how that also made a people. You made a covenant with a people. Thank you. Continue to meet with us now. Remind us. Move us as we take these different elements in hand. And move us to, to love you and to follow you and to, to live after you as we ought. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.